Hello and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the feminist podcast that this week is all about literal queen shit. Today we have Kellen, Laura, Ozzy, and Zoe. And in the wake of the death of Queen Elizabeth II, we are going to be talking about the British monarchy. There are, of course, like thousands, hundreds of thousands maybe, of books on this subject. Um, College courses can be and are taught about it, and we only have an hour, so it's not going to be exhaustive. We're not going to go back to like king henry the eighth we're really going to just be focusing on more recent stuff um and we have a lot to talk about so i think we should just get going i think we're going to start just like by talking about some some british colonialism stuff classic but yeah as you do the sun never (laughs) sets baby (laughs) (laughs) um yeah i guess i figure like those of us in the u.s are fairly familiar with early British colonial history, just because that is also a part of US history. Um, But I wanted to do like a little bit of a refresher, just like overview of British colonialism. Um, So beginning in the 1500s, the British Empire began colonizing North America and the Caribbean. And in the 1600s, that also expanded to include parts of South Asia and Western and Southern Africa. Folks probably know that originally many of these colonies were first taken control of by like private British business interests. Um, The East India Company is probably the most well-known example. And as these companies became more profitable by extracting resources and using a combination of literal enslavement and extremely violent labor practices, the British monarchy basically was like, that looks great, let's get in on that, um, and started to assert more and more control of these areas of land. So by the 1800s, the British Empire had a formal government office that was in charge of colonial activities, and Britain started to really ramp up colonizing various nations, particularly in Africa. Um, So by the early 1900s, several of these colonies had moved to the status of dominions. So Canada, Australia, and New Zealand were the first countries that sort of moved from a colony to being called dominion, this new term. Um, So those three examples may make this obvious, but these were countries that already had extensive European populations and more importantly, governments that were controlled by white Europeans. So the British empire had more sort of investment and like agreement in like loosening the colonial relationship there a bit, Um, kind of similar to the earlier situation in the US. This wasn't a case of indigenous communities in these areas being given any sort of control over their land, resources, government, um, but rather kind of a sign of this already effective campaign of extermination and disenfranchisement of indigenous populations in those countries. Um, So those nations were the earliest members of the British Commonwealth, uh, these Dominion countries, and the British Commonwealth still exists. It now has 
many more members that are former British colonies. Um, and thus, this is the reason why Canada still has Queen Elizabeth on its money and now has to decide if they want to put someone else on their money or not, which for me personally has been one of the funnier memes going around Twitter this week. Uh, someone suggested the Trailer Park Boys. I saw someone suggest Carly Rae Jepsen. Yes, that's um, my vote. Yeah, I which I love. Um, the funny thing that I learned while looking into this is that Queen Elizabeth actually has been on Canadian money since 1935 when she was eight years old. So I guess they were just like, she's obviously going to be queen one day. So let's just get out ahead of it. Put her on the money right now. Um, but basically, it's just she's been on the money for so long. It genuinely is kind of a mystery what Canada is going to do about this. Um I personally think Celine Dion is the obvious choice, Absolutely. but you know. <laughs> um, okay, but also not that I think she should be on the money, but my question is like dead people are on money all the time. Is it different in Canada? I yeah, apparently it does not have to be like a ruler. Like they don't have to switch to mm. King Charles, but I, it's unclear to me if like this has a, I think it's kind of like unprecedented that they haven't like had to decide this with like modern government systems before. Um, but yeah, we'll hmm. we'll keep y'all updated. Like here in the US, we love this. dead colonizers on our money. So I quite frankly we can't really relate. do. Yeah. Um, I mean, they may also just not take her off. It's hard to say. Um but I guess, so we're going to get a little bit more specifically into like some specific examples of colonial atrocities that were committed by the British Empire pre-Elizabeth and during her reign as well. But I just feel like it's important to note that even these events that happened before she took power aren't really separate from her legacy. They're a part of her and her family's legacy and like what what her power represented and was for um, and continues to represent even in death since they're just going to keep sticking new royal babies with increasingly more fucked up genetics into the throne. Um, Queen Elizabeth specifically came to power at a time of increasing activism within British colonies fighting for independence. So I think like the immediate colonial history right before she took the throne is especially relevant um, the U.S., of course, has the dubious honor of being the first British colony to gain independence in, you guessed it, 1776. <laughs> maybe um, you've heard of it. Yeah, may maybe you're familiar with that year. Um, but after that, it took until the 1900s for any other countries to begin gaining formal independence from British rule. Uh, so from 1919 to 1951, right before Queen Elizabeth took the throne, nine countries became independent from Britain, which included Afghanistan in 1919, Egypt in 1922, and India and Pakistan in 1947. Um, each of these countries obviously has its own kind of like uniquely horrific history of colonialism and British subjugation. Um, but I think we're going to talk a little more specifically about India since it's one of the biggest and most populous countries in the world. And I think its relationship to Britain really set the template in many ways for how Britain would approach both colonial rule and then also like suppressing pushback against that colonial rule. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I specifically wanted to talk about this thing that happened in India um, right before Queen Elizabeth ascended to the throne. So 
Um, from 1943 to 1944, more than 3 million Indians died of starvation and mal- malnutrition, and millions more fell into crushing poverty. Um, research by the economist Utsa Patnaik reveals that the wartime inflation wasn't incidental, as most had assumed, but a deliberate policy designed by the British economist John Maynard Keynes, who libs love, by the way, you may have heard of Keynesian economics, um, and implemented by Winston Churchill, enemy of the pod. Keynes sought to devise a mechanism for shifting resources away from the local population in order to provide provision to the military expansion. He advocated for an indirect tax through deliberate inflationary policy. During the 1940s, the colonial government printed extraordinary amounts of money for military expenditure. All this new demand caused prices to soar, particularly for staple goods. The price of rice increased by over 300%. But because wages did not rise accordingly, ordinary people were pushed even deeper into poverty forcing them to dramatically curtail their consumption of food and other goods. British policy was explicitly designed to, quote, reduce the consumption of the poor, as Keynes put it, in order to make resources available for British and American troops through a forced transfer of purchasing power from ordinary people to the military. The austerity was imposed most harshly on the people of Bengal, who fell into extreme famine while food supplies were appropriated and diverted for military use. In the name of the Allied cause, the the policies imposed by Keynes and Churchill killed more than 3 million people. Many, many more times than the total number of military and civilian casualties suffered during the entirety of World War II by Britain and the U.S. combined. Anytime that somebody praises Churchill, I always think about the Bengal famine. Like... It's so fucked up. Somebody so literally quoted up. Churchill at work today, and I was like, "Oh my god, enemy of the pod, enemy, anyway. definite enemy." And other World War Two era um, issues. Yeah, speaking of enemies of the pod, let's talk about Nazis. So, <laughs> so, and this was also represented somewhat in um, the show The Crown. I I've only actually watched one episode of it, but. I remember when it came out, a lib that I know was like shocked by the connections between the royal family and Nazis. And I was like, I mean, is it like really that much of a jump from white supremacy to white supremacy? But let's get into what those connections are. So some background on those ties. Um, So the royal family has refused to release any related documentation between their official ties. Um to the Nazi Germany government. Um, They're like, have either been erased or they're on lockdown, but there's plenty of information that is known regardless. And so for starters, there is the Duke and Duchess of Windsor who are known for having been Nazi sympathizers. The Windsors were former monarch Edward VIII and his American love, Wallace Simpson. Uh, for whom he actually abdicated the throne. So there was intelligence given to the FBI claiming that the Nazis were using the Duke and Duchess to glean information that would settle the war effort of the Allies. 
And a royal biographer named Andrew Morton said, quote, even after the war, he thought Hitler was a good fella and that he'd done a good job in Germany. And he was also anti-Semitic before, during and after the war. So Edward was at the center of an alleged plot to overthrow Winston, the Winston Churchill government in favor of a pro-Nazi one. And this was part of a larger plot to also help get Edward reinstalled as king because he had abdicated for his wife. Um, and his wife, Sim- Sim- his wife Simpson was also alleged to have deep Nazi links with rumors that prior to marrying Edward, she was actually the lover of a Nazi foreign minister named Joachim von Ribbentrop. Crushed it. Thank you. Oh. <laughs> Um, then we also have a former British prince named Carl Edward, also known as Charles Edward, the Duke of Coburg, also known as Charlie Coburg, who was Queen Victoria's grandson. I don't know why these people have 50 names, um, but because they're royal, I guess. So and also first cousin to King George the fifth, the, yeah, the fifth and confidant to the Duke of Windsor. So Coburg was employed by Hitler as a go-between for for the Nazi government to exploit the royal family's pro-German leanings. And he was valued as a key asset to Hitler, who laid out in a telegram sent from the Nazi leader's bunker in April 45th that, quote, the Fuhrer attaches importance to the Duke of Coburg on no account falling into enemy hands. And there was another potential Nazi royal cousin. So some historians believe that Prince George, the Duke of Kent, and uncle to Queen Elizabeth II, played a key part in planning a coup d'etat with Hitler's deputy Hess to remove Prime Minister Winston Churchill and forge a treaty with Hitler. So one of the most enduring mysteries of World War II was why Hess himself parachuted into Scotland in 1941. And historians believe Um, that there are very strong points after reviewing all of these documents to an Anglo-German conspiracy. And intriguingly, Prince George, who served in the RAF, is said to have been in Scotland when Hess arrived. And so these historians say, quote, having weighed up all the evidence and in light of recent discoveries we have made, we now believe that it was, in fact, a coup attempt centered around Prince George. The aristocracy had the most to lose from Churchill staying in power. All they knew was that Germany was bombing Britain nightly, softening the country up prior to invasion, which would surely cost them their wealth, their status, and their lives. And the prince died in action on August 25th, 1942. And so this brings us to Queen Elizabeth. Um, And this one is contended, but there's this 22nd long video that was obtained by The Sun um, in 2015, which is thought to have been shot around 1933 or 1934. And it appears to show Queen Elizabeth II um, as a young girl around seven or eight performing the Nazi salute as coached by the Nazi sympathizer uncle Edward. And um, the Queen's mother also appears to be making the salute like in the background of the video. And the reason this is contended is that some people are like, oh, no, she was being taught just the regular royal salute, but like seems doubtful. (laughs) Highly (laughs) suspicious. Also, people are like, well, she was eight. She wouldn't have known what she was doing. And it's like, why not? TBD. I mean, or not, you know, unless (laughs) more um, documents are released. Uh, Only the devil knows now. (laughs) Yes, the devil knows now. 
And maybe she's telling Ronnie Reagan and how, you know, maybe, maybe she's maybe doing something. Um, all right, well, let's get into Queen Lizzie herself. Uh, Queen Lizzie became queen at the age of 27. That's fucking wild. That's so young. It's so, so young. Um, this was when her father, George VI, died on February 6th, 1952. Oppressed people worldwide will remember her for shamelessly living off the wealth her family reaped from the profits of enslaved people and on the backs of her subjects across the British Empire and the taxes of the workers in the UK. Paris Hilton, on the other hand, will remember her as the world's original girl boss. <laughs> uh, cursed. Um, I guess one thing that I just wanted to note here is that Britain is still an active empire. Um, to this day, there are 14 British colonies that are still under colonial rule. That includes the British Virgin Islands, Bermuda, and the Cayman Islands. Um, lest we forget, the U.S. also has five inhabited colonies, which are euphemistically called territories, uh, which includes Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Obviously, the Virgin Islands and the Caribbean more broadly really got in the crosshairs of a lot of different colonial powers fighting to control that land and resources. Um, but I guess, so as I mentioned earlier, before Queen Elizabeth came to power, nine former British colonies had pretty recently gained independence. And over the course of her rule, another 48 countries gained independence. Um, I've seen some pundits kind of suggesting that this is evidence of her leniency. Like, it was so nice yeah. of her to let these countries be independent. Um, I would say it's more so evidence of how horrific British rule was to live under and that organizers in many of these countries were at a point of saying, like, enough is enough and we need to fight back against this in a specific way during the time that Queen Elizabeth was in power. Um, and I think it's also worth noting that even after gaining independence, a lot of these countries, including India, Kenya, Jamaica, have been essentially forced into maintaining a relationship with Britain through membership in the Commonwealth countries. So this is like, you know, the same sort of thing by which Canada is a part of the British government. But the arrangement is basically that the British government maintains some degree of control and influence over its former colonies, while sort of returning a small amount of the wealth that it extracted from those countries under the guise of often like humanitarian aid, quote unquote, um, very much so like just a scam. They took this money all from like their colonies and now are pretending to give some of it back in a very small way. Um, but I guess like I, I think it can just be easy for those of us in the U.S. or at least for me to feel like this is kind of old history and mm -hmm. Queen Elizabeth was like just queen right now. So maybe she didn't have like that much to do with some of the worst things that the British Empire did. But no, she definitely did. <laughs> yes. And to name a few of the atrocities that happened during her reign, because obviously this will not be a comprehensive list because we would be here for literally ever. Um, I thought we could start with Kenya because that's where Lizzie was when she found out that she was going to be queen um, and there was some really messed up shit that happened there. So she oversaw brutal concentration camps in colonialist Kenya during the Mau Mau Rebellion. 
the Mau Mau in a nutshell, was an anti-colonial civil war. Yeah. And so just to be clear, like Kenya was one of those British quote unquote colonial possessions and Africa, they had originally claimed it as part of their East Africa protectorate in 1895. It was later reorganized as quote, the Kenya colony. Um, And there was obviously like resistance to to colonial rule during the entire period, but a major wave came in the form of the Mao Rao Rebellion that Laura's talking about, which started in 1952, which is coincidentally the same year that Elizabeth took the throne as queen. Exactly. Um, so the people who joined the movement, the Mao Mao Rebellion movement, took an oath of allegiance and out of more than 1.5 million Kenyans, about 90% took what was considered the first oath of allegiance to the movement. So this was a massive movement and they were demanding land and freedom from the British government. And as a way to suppress that, the British government implemented a state of emergency and rounded up and detained nearly all of the Mau Mau revolutionaries, nearly 1.5 million people. Additionally, about 20,000 or 30,000 people fled to the forests. The British actually called this the Forest War, which they say lasted from 1952 to 1954. But the state of emergency that had been declared extended from 1954 to 1960. And it's during that time period that they exacted extraordinary torture, forced labor, punishment and starvation in order to get the detainees and those who were detained in emergency villages to renounce their allegiance to the Mau Mau and to adopt their allegiance back to the British and to the crown and to Her Majesty in order to be released from the camps. Churchill denied and covered up any accusations of wrongdoing by the British, and this denied... the pod. Yes, exactly. And this denial continued in the British government for many years until the truth found its way out. Kenya won its independence in 1963 after the colonists were caught red-handed in 1959 with what's called the Hola Massacre, where 11 detainees were beaten to death in a Hola detention camp. It wasn't an exceptional moment compared to their other atrocities they committed, but what's different about this one was that they couldn't explain it away. And I just thought it was interesting that currently... Kenyans are suing Britain for up to $200 billion in reparations for land theft and violent colonial abuses. Um, British colonizers forced to lie and kip people off their land in Carrico County to make tea farms for white settlers between 1895 and 1963. Kenya is one of the largest black tea exporters in the world, and to this day, multinational corporations like Lipton and Unilever continue to profit from the land and labor of Kenyans. Former Chief Justice of Kenya, Willie Matunga, says, Global citizens should precisely bear in mind as they enjoy that cup of tea. That cup of tea has a history of domination, colonialism, exploitation, and slave labor. These issues still exist in Kenya because colonialism shifted from a country occupying a space to a multinational corporation occupying a space. But in many ways, they function in the same way. And colonialism and imperialism have paved the way for neo-imperialism through the multinational corporation. 
So another area that um, during Elizabeth's reign, uh, the British really fucked up. So is in Yemen. The British ruled over South Yemen starting in the mid-1950s as a colony in which native Yemenis were separated from the public image while white Britons lingered around as if it was their own country. The main punitive measure of Queen Elizabeth's Aden colony was forced deportations of native Yemenis into Yemen's desert heartland. In 1963, the Yemeni people rebelled against British colonialism. In turn, the queen ordered her troops to violently suppress any and all dissent as fiercely as possible. Though Britain publicly maintained a policy of non-intervention in Yemen, it was in fact secretly supplying fighter jets fighter jets to carry out airstrikes on the country, as well as millions of pounds of weapons to royalist forces. Airwork Services, a private private British defense company, even signed a $26 million contract to provide personnel to train Saudi pilots. The royalists lost the war to the Yemeni people in 1969, but by that time, an estimated 200,000 people had been killed. Moving right along to Indonesia. In 1965, British spies launched a sophisticated propaganda campaign inciting violence against the Indonesia Communist Party, also known as PKI, which was at the time the third largest communist party in the world. From Singapore, the British propagandists created newsletters purportedly written by Indonesian diaspora encouraging those within the country, including army generals, to, quote, cut out the communist cancer, and eliminate the PKI. The PKI, they said, is now a wounded snake, and now is the time to kill it before it has the chance to recover. The offensive also included a radio station run by Malaysians broadcasting anti-communist propaganda into Indonesia. This campaign was launched by Britain to undermine PKI-supported Indonesian President Sukarno, who opposed the administration's pan plans to combine its former colonies into a Malaysian federation, a plan he saw as the empire trying to preserve its colonial control in the region. On October 1st, an attempted coup within the army carried out by left-wing forces, believing that some within the ranks were planning a coup against Sukarno, was the catalyst for General Sukarto to to seize power, crush the rebellion, and massacre all he suspected of having ties to the PKI. The violence finally ended in March 1966 when Sukarno abdicated power to General Sukarto. By that time, an estimated 500,000 to 1 million people had been killed, making it one of the worst massacres of the 20th century. Um, the next place we wanted to talk about is Ireland, and as listeners probably know, the Irish struggle for independence was ongoing throughout Queen Elizabeth's reign. So Ireland's independence from Great Britain, um, the Ireland that we now know as, as its own country, that was a multi-step process. It started out as a colony, then there was the Irish War of Independence in the 1920s, after which the island was partitioned into Northern Ireland and the Irish Free State. And the Irish Free State was part of the Commonwealth that um, Ozzy talked about earlier, uh, but it was no longer a colony in the same way. 
Then in 1937, the Irish Constitution was signed and the Irish Free State became the Republic of Ireland that we know today. Um, of course, the island of Ireland remained petitioned with Northern Ireland remaining part of the United Kingdom. And many in Northern Ireland, especially the Catholic minority, were unhappy with that state of affairs and wanted to be part of a free greater Ireland. Um, there's a lot of Ireland in this conversation, so I'm sorry if it's confusing. But anyway, the result is decades of clashes between Northern Ireland Irish paramilitary groups, most notably the IRA, and the British state alongside British paramilitary groups in Northern Ireland. And this period of violence, which really kicked off in the 1960s and lasted until 1998 when peace was declared, was known as the Troubles. It's worth noting that the Troubles covered almost half of Queen Elizabeth's very long reign, and the Troubles are still the longest conflict that the British army has been continuously involved in. So it's estimated that almost 2,000 civilians died and almost 50,000 were injured over the course of this very long simmering conflict. Absolutely. Thank you for giving that background. There's, there's so much with Ireland. There's so much with Ireland, but, um, one of the things that we wanted to talk about is Bloody Sunday, which is one of the key events during the Troubles, um, which Kellen um, already described. So on January 30th, 1972, during a march in Derry, Northern Ireland, British military opened fire on a crowd of protesters, shooting 26, 14 of whom died from their injuries. During the attack, 108 rounds of ammunition were discharged by 21 soldiers firing their weapons. The Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association had organized the march in response to legislation passed by the British government in August of 1971, which allowed authorities to imprison suspected Irish nationalists without trial. Catholic communities in Northern Ireland were already subject to discrimination by the majority Protestant government. Yeah, and Bloody Sunday is, like, terrible, um, and it's probably the most well-known incident of state violence against nationalists in Northern Ireland, but it's also worth noting that there were significant moments of violence that have gotten less attention and were also very bad um, that we just don't talk about. So, like, as an example that's, like, particularly striking to me, the very night that the British government announced that the Bloody Sunday murders wouldn't face charges... British security forces killed seven more unarmed Catholic Northern Ironers, Islanders, I, Irelanders. Uh, I guess they're also Islanders, but um, specifically Islanders on Ireland um, in Andersonville, which is in Northern Ireland. Um, the security forces weren't in uniform. They were in an unmarked van. One of the guys who was involved said years later that the British army had tried to make it seem like loyalist civilians had been responsible in order to, quote, take the heat off the army. And once again, those murderers were never prosecuted either. I think that concludes our colonialism roundup. Um yes. Exactly. So we can move on, I guess. Yeah, we're going to talk about some other bullshit that happened, <laughs> <laughs> you know, in the last 74 years or whatever. Um, no, I mean, yeah, right? 74? Something like that. Something like that. Um, so I 
I just want to clear something up. I don't think any of our listeners will be confused about this, but I saw some queer websites trying to say the queen was okay on queer stuff. I don't know, because she met with Elton John or something, but like... (laughs) Lest we forget, during the 1980s, the Queen tried to stop Princess Di's work in HIV HIV advocacy, telling her to do something, quote, more pleasant. The Queen and the whole royal family spread misinformation about HIV and AIDS and refused to be anywhere near anyone who was diagnosed with these illnesses. But icon Lady Di ignored her, instead using her platform to tackle stigma and other comfort to terrified people sick with what was then a terminal illness. Obviously, Lady Di is an icon, and we will talk about that more soon. And then there's been some royal family cover-ups. I mean, like, the amount of royal family cover-ups are unknown, but it's, I'm sure, a lot. But let's talk about some more recent ones. So... Queen Elizabeth had two severely disabled first cousins, Nerissa and Catherine Bowes-Lyon, who were publicly pronounced dead in 1940 and 1961, respectively, but they both actually lived in a care home with no visits and no support from the royal family until their actual deaths in 1986 and 2014. When one died in 1986, none of her family attended the funeral. Her grave was marked with plastic tags and a serial number until her existence was revealed in the media, after which the family added a gravestone. Queen Lizzie. Yeah, big, big (laughs) yikes. Um, Queen Lizzie has also personally and repeatedly shielded rapist Prince Andrew. That's her second oldest son. Um... And we're going to be getting uh, more into that later. Yes, we will be getting more into that in a bit. Um, But first, I wanted to talk about a different potential cover up. Um, This one's a little bit random, but as as the true crimey here, I I felt it was important to to talk about um, the Jack the Ripper theory and how that relates to the royal family. I'm so excited. Oh, my God. I don't know anything about this. I don't know anything about this either. (laughs) I'm so okay. excited. So, um, as you all may know, I don't want to say I love true crime. I'm, I'm, I'm absorbed by true crime, and <laughs> also, but I do love a good, just generally, I love a good like theory. I love a, a good conspiracy theory. And so, there is a somewhat widespread theory that Prince Albert Victor, who was a grandson to Queen Victoria, is Jack the Ripper. And if anyone's not familiar, Jack the Ripper. Um, which is a pseudonym, clearly, is someone who committed five murders of sex workers between 1888 and 1891 in Whitechapel, which was one of the poorest neighborhoods in London at that time. And so in 1960, Stephen Knight presented the theory um, in the book called Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution. And essentially, there's two different potential stories behind the theory of why it is um, Prince Albert Victor. And so one part of the theory is that the murders were an attempt to cover up a secret that would shake the foundation of the monarchy. And so Prince Albert's life was marked by a few potential scandals, including rumors of homosexuality, which at that time was illegal. Um, And that followed Albert for a lot of his adult life. And so those rumors really came to a head in 1889 when 
police closed down a male brothel and discovered that one of the clients at the brothel had connections to the prince. And there had been other, um, he had had other connections with male brothels at the time. And there were kind of a lot of um, rumors around that and him being gay. And it was also rumored that Albert had contracted syphilis from a sex worker during a trip he took to the West Indies. Okay. So the first like theory of why he would have done it is that it's rumored that he contracted syphilis from a sex worker during a trip to the West Indies. And that over time, as the disease progressed, it began to attack his brain. And so that he decided to take revenge on sex workers by going to London and for a few years carrying out this string of vicious killings that we associate with the Ripper murders. And then the second idea of why he might have done these murders and kind of placing him in this neighborhood is that um, it doesn't connect him directly with having done the murders, but instead it suggests that Albert fell in love with a young Catholic girl who lived in Whitechapel and the two of them married and secretly had a child. Um, but the idea that the eventual heir to the throne would have a child with a commoner, particularly a Catholic one, was unacceptable to the royal family. And so the idea in, in this part of the theory is that the killings would have actually been the work of agents of the royal family murdering anyone who had any knowledge of the prince's secret marriage or child and so there's no record that anyone i like alive better because gay rights you know <laughs> yes <laughs> i mean like um, gays can be sociopaths too i guess but like... <laughs> yeah i mean he might have been a bisexual murderous icon we don't know <laughs> But there's no record that anyone alive at the time was suggesting that the royal family or anyone associated with them was behind the Ripper killings. But I just like wouldn't put it past them. Never. Um, Absolutely not. That's like not even yeah. close to the worst atrocity. <laughs> exactly. There's a lot of theories of like who Jack the Ripper was, but I like this one. I, I feel like it's right. <laughs> I believe you. <laughs> and speaking of um, scandals brings us to the Jeffrey Epstein connections. We're sorry to bring up Jeffrey Epstein on this podcast, honestly, but like bear with we, us. We gotta. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So um, as someone who watches a lot of scandal and crime documentaries <laughs> and podcasts, um, I just want to say that like Jeffrey Epstein has been in so many things somewhat unexpectedly in like the past mm. few years of these things coming out. Um, for example, I was recently watching the Victoria's Secret doc and I did not know that Epstein was like truly besties with the guy who founded Victoria's Secret. Like they lived in uh, different part, like Jeffrey Epstein lived in the guest house of this guy's mansion um, and like he was a creeper on Victoria's Secret models. That part wasn't surprising, but like how close these two men were was like, okay. Um, to the point that, yeah, Jeffrey Epstein got his first private jet at a discounted rate from Victoria's Secret. It was a Victoria's Secret jet. Wow. Yeah. So, um, I digress. That's just to say like Epstein was literally everywhere all at once, um, including with Prince Andrew. AKA the Duke of York. AKA the Queen's creepy fucking son. And if you're like, is he the, the one fuck? that says the tampon thing? 
No, that's Charles. That mm. that was the other one, actually. Okay. <laughs> the other creepy son. They're both they're both creepy, I guess. Got it. Yeah. Definitely okay. creepy. yeah, none of these people are great. Um so if you're like, who the fuck is Prince Andrew? That's because he's pretty low down in the line of succession. But the position of people that are in those relations to the royal family where like they're not really in a place where they're likely to take the throne, but they're basically used for like international relations. And so Prince Andrew was friends with Epstein and photographed with him many, many times over the years. He even stayed in his Manhattan mansion in 2010, which was two years after Epstein was convicted of sexual misconduct with minors and he like openly admitted to that as in prince andrew openly admitted like oh yeah in 2010 i stayed in his mansion and people were like what the fuck because like now you don't have plausible deniability like you yeah. like everyone knew at that point he'd oh, already stupid. been convicted yeah exactly but on uh december 30th in 2014 a florida court filing but um, alleged that Prince Andrew was one of several prominent figures who have participated in sexual activities with a minor who was later identified as, as Virginia Jerufi, who was trafficked by Epstein. Jerufi, who was then known by her maiden name, Virginia Roberts, asserted that she had sex with Andrew on three different occasions, including a trip to London in 2001 when she was 17, and later in New York and on Little St. James in the U.S. Virgin Islands, which that was... Epstein's Island. You have probably heard of it. She alleged that Epstein paid her $15,000 to have sex with the Duke. Oh my God. The London flight logs show the Duke and Jufree were in the places that she alleged the sex happened. Um, so they used that to, to at least c- confirm her story. Andrew and Jufree were photographed together with his arm around her waist and an Epstein aso- and Epstein's associate. I always mispronounce this bitch's name. Ghislaine Maxwell was standing in the background. You know who she is. Um, I'm not going to pronounce her name correctly. I honestly don't know how to yeah. say it. It's like Ghislaine. I, I, I think calling her Ghislaine is much funnier and more accurate. So let's just go with it. Um, and she was in the background of the photo. There have been two more Epstein victims who have said they were forced to have sex with Prince Andrew since that case. And then while all of the Epstein shit was like really hitting the fans, so to speak, Buckingham Palace announced in a statement that Andrew would be suspended from public duties for the quote foreseeable future uh, with the consent of the queen. And soon after he gave up his role as chancellor of the University of Huddersfield and stepped down from all of his 230 patronages. All activities carried out by the Prince Andrew Charitable Trust have also been stopped. So Andrews is now a permanently non-active member of the royal family, and he has no public-facing duties required of him. Okay, so moving on from Prince Andrew, who I feel comfortable calling an enemy of the pod, um, to Princess Diana now, who, while we at Season of the Bitch detest monarchy, is still worth recognizing as probably one of the least shitty people to be a member of the royal family. Absolutely. Um, (laughs) I'll her if she were still alive. Yeah. (laughs) So... As some background, Prince Charles, now King Charles III, Queen Elizabeth's eldest son, met Princess Diana when she was 16, and he, he was 29, and um, actually dating Diana's 28-year-old sister. So, And that's why that. he's the other creepy son. The other creepy brother. Um, and Wait, I found- the king like, is the tampon guy? 
Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> this is why people don't want him to be on money because they're like. So for people who don't know, he told um, his now wife, not Diana, like basically, not like I guess over the phone that he like wanted to be her tampon and uh, to be like sexy. Um, deeply embarrassing. I've never heard anything less sexy be spoken. <laughs> no, but to get back to him being creepy in a different way. Yes. Um, they had they eventually described in two separate interviews what their first thoughts were upon meeting each other. Diana's first thoughts about me upon meeting Prince, now King Charles, Prince Charles then, were, quote, God, what a sad man. (laughs) (laughs) True. She knew immediately. Yeah. Um, Charles' first thoughts upon meeting Diana were, he said, he remembered later, quote, I remember thinking what a very jolly and amusing and attractive 16-year-old she was. I mean, great fun and bouncy and full of life and everything. Um, So I'm losing my mind, basically. Um, There is speculation that even when he first met her, Charles was at the time in love with his current wife, Camilla of Tampon Gate, um, with whom he had already been attached, but who was widely viewed as an unsuitable match for the heir to the British crown. So at any rate, Charles and Diana started dating when she was 19. Charles reportedly proposed after only having met her in person 13 times, which is better than the bachelor and the bachelorette. So who am I to criticize? (laughs) Um, <laughs> they married in 1981. It was like a massive televised event. I think like the first big like royal wedding. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first Charles, televised like, one at least. Yeah, Char- like yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. Like the first big TV royal wedding that we think of today. Like, um, and like, not too long after he started having an affair with Camilla again. Yeah, he also brought a photo of Camilla on their honeymoon. Oh my god. Which I feel like, and like Diana found it in his like bag or wallet or whatever. Oh and God. I feel like by today's standards, that's basically like sexting someone else from your honeymoon. Truly. Like, yeah. I don't know what the picture was, but it's like, that's really yeah. sus. So needless to say, they divorced. Um, they separated in 1992, divorced in 1996. But... During the time that she was attached to the British monarchy, as well as afterwards, Diana got a lot of press attention. So she was widely viewed as a fashion icon, for one thing, um, which true, yes, slay, etc. She did the typical royal thing of being a patron of various charities. Um, We just heard about how Prince Andrew got all of his patronages revoked. Um, But that means like doing fundraisers and press and events for them. Some of her charities were like typical royal stuff like orphaned children or ballet. Um, But as Laura mentioned, she also became extremely involved in AIDS work um, in the 1980s when people were still afraid to like actually make physical contact with people who had AIDS. Diana would be intentionally filmed and photographed shaking hands with AIDS patients. So she also said in 1987, quote, HIV does not make people dangerous to know. You can shake their hands and give them a hug. Heaven knows they need it. What's more, you can share their homes, their workplaces and their playgrounds and toys. Yeah, just to add on to that a bit, it's it's really common for royals to wear gloves when shaking hands with people. Like if you look at basically any photos of the queen in public, she's wearing gloves. Um, 
And Diana would intentionally not wear gloves when shaking hands with people with HIV AIDS, like to prove a point and to show that it wasn't dangerous. And that was also very frowned upon by the rest of the royal fam. Yeah. As Laura mentioned, the queen asked her to stop doing AIDS work, um, but she didn't. She even worked with Nelson Mandela, which itself was obviously a big thing given Britain's relationship with the former apartheid government of South Africa, which was a former British colony. Um, She worked with him on AIDS children's charity uh, stuff. And actually the two of them had an event that they were working on together that was scheduled to take place just after her death in 1997. And Nelson Mandela praised Diana publicly for her AIDS work, remarking that when she stroked the limbs of someone with leprosy, which was another cause she worked on, or sat on the bed of a man with HIV AIDS and held his hand, she transformed public attitudes and improved the life chances of such people. Um, but we can't talk about Princess Diana without getting into her just like horrible treatment by the royal family, including the queen, and of course the circumstances surrounding her death. In a leaked phone call with one of her childhood friends just before the dissolution of her marriage, Diana remarked on her despair. She said, quote, I just felt so sad and empty and thought bloody hell after all I've done for this fucking family. It's just so desperate always being innuendo the fact that i'm going to do something dramatic because i can't stand the confines of this marriage he makes my life real torture i've decided diana revealed through a biographer that she had been dealing with self-harm and had even attempted suicide because of her treatment by the royal family and she also revealed that the queen quote indicated to me that the reason why our marriage had gone downhill was because prince charles was having such a difficult time with my bulimia end quote which just big time fuck that fuck that yeah so as kellen mentioned there was like a four-year time period between diana and charles separating and when they actually got divorced and that was because divorce is so highly frowned upon by the royal family um and as was just mentioned there was this big interview where she like gave up all this information and at that time a lot of people um thought that she was like a loose cannon or was just like had like finally lost it. Um, But she was actually really utilizing the press attention to expose a lot of the issues because she knew that if she did that, it would make the queen push for divorce, which was correct. Um, So she actually used those interviews to be really calculated because she knew it was like the only way that she'd be able to fully escape the Royal family because otherwise um, the now king was going to listen to his mother because he wanted to be the now king and so like when his mom was like you can't actually get divorced you have to figure it out that's what the royals do like he wouldn't actually get a divorce Mm -hmm. and then after this interview like all the tabloid pages were like queen calls for charles to divorce diana and then lo and behold the tabloid press as zoe suggested um was just like absolutely obsessed with diana and her relationship with charles um and even after the, their divorce she remained in the spotlight and she actually died in a car crash in france fleeing the paparazzi um she was in a car with her boyfriend uh dodi fayed who was an egyptian billionaire and both of their bodyguards but there are um you know conspiracies that suggest that her death was actually orchestrated by the royal family um probably not but uh, as we said before unless um, who would put it past them <laughs> um and 
for people who know even a little bit about, about the Diana stuff, there are definitely like obvious parallels with the royal family's treatment and the press's obsession with Meghan Markle, who is, of course, the wife of Prince Harry, Diana's younger son. And from what we know, uh, Meghan Markle's treatment by the royal family is possibly even worse than Diana's. Mm -hmm. She and Harry famously had an interview with Oprah where they revealed that Meghan had similar struggles with her mental health, including suicidal ideation, and that Harry's knowledge of his mother's own struggles prompted him to take that really seriously. He and Meghan moved to North America. They renounced their royal titles. They've raised their two children in like relative secrecy away from the press, um, particularly the British press, which was like horribly critical and absolutely racist towards Meghan, as was his own family. Um, One of the big bombshells from that interview was when Harry revealed that someone in his family was actively talking about how concerned they were about how dark their child was going to be because of course Megan is a black woman mm-hmm. um you hate to see it I mean the best part about that Oprah interview or one of the best parts in my mind is just the icon moment of Oprah being like were you silent or were you silenced <laughs> <laughs> so good <laughs> Very good. Um, So I'm like obsessed with fashion and I also really love that Megan has been dressing really similarly, like really similarly to outfits Die wore. So she's also fully acknowledging the ways in which she's been treated by the family and how that aligns her with Lady Die. And also there was um, a really recent interview. I believe it was even after um, Queen Elizabeth died on Harry saying that he truly felt like if he were to stay in that family, the same exact thing was going to happen to um, his wife. And like his one big regret was like not believing her sooner, not like understanding the gravity of it sooner, because basically he's just like, I saw it to happen to my mom. I'm not letting it happen to my wife. Like we got to get the fuck out of here. And so like, not that we're standing Prince Harry, who's no longer Prince Harry, but like also kind of am like you renounced the fucking throne. Let's go. Yeah, I feel like you're right that, you know, they're like the least worst people right. in the world. Right, right. Like exactly. that's, that's the standard we can go with. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Although right. we do, you know, TV, remember TVT, the Prince Harry did dress up as a Nazi for Halloween Ew, one year. So okay. we so true. I, I knew there was gonna be something. It's it's inescapable. His family's so fucked up. And as <laughs> yeah. Zoe brought up, there are so many Nazis. Yeah. Um, it's unavoidable that someone would be dressed. <laughs> Just a and Nazi then, at some point. Wait, the other brother. What's Harry? Wait, Andrew? Harry's brother. No, Harry. Uh, Harry's wait. brother is William. Prince William. Yeah. Okay. So then, after the Oprah interview, they ask William if the royal family is racist, and he's like, "No, we are not a racist family." And it's like, <laughs> what are you talking about? You're literally. Oh my you, god. You possibly are the inventors. Honestly. Uh, yeah, of racism. Yeah. Yeah. Modern well, racism. The British yeah. monarchy. <laughs> I mean, who's to say? It's all it's everywhere, but like, come on. Come on. The British monarchy. Yeah. There's certainly no basis for claiming that you're not a racist exactly. family. <laughs> yes. Can be easily fact-checked, as we just did. 
It's like what what is the way that that one website does it? It would be like pants on fire when it's like fully, fully, fully. Yeah. Low. When they do like the presidential Four debates Pinocchios. or whatever. Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, I think we're going to leave it there. We truly could roast the royal family all day, but, you so know, true. we we have to conclude this episode somewhere. Um, but if you enjoyed our work, please give us some money on Patreon at patreon.com slash season of the bitch. Um, if you give us some money there, you can join our discord and chat with us um, participate in reading groups and all the other fun stuff we do there. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Season of the Bee. Uh, visit our website, seasonofthebee.com. Send us an email, if you dare, seasonofthebee at gmail.com. Um, and you can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to us right now. Uh, tell us what spooky season content you'd like to see. We would love to oh hear God, your suggestions. yes. <laughs> anyway do we do witches uh, part three <laughs> yes but just call or it vampires witches. part two oh, i mean like or yes. part one million as well <sighs> yes. um, thank you but yeah stick stick around to find out <laughs> love you. all right love you bye bye, bye. the bitch.